Hey there, and welcome to the Games That Made Me podcast, a personal reflection on a life spent gaming. I'm your host, Brendan. In this podcast, I share the video games that have had the biggest impact on my life and explore the reasons behind why they were so influential. In today's episode, the hero of Dragon Quest VIII will be returning to give us his insight into the towns, dungeons, characters, and monsters he encounters on the journey of the Cursed King. Mild spoiler alert. Mild spoiler alert. Today's episode will cover events that occur toward the beginning of Dragon Quest VIII, including the events of Port Prospect and Peregrine Key. If you have never played through Dragon Quest VIII before, and you want to start your playthrough knowing as little as possible, then today's episode is not for you. Proceed listening at your own caution. And without further ado, I'd like to welcome back the hero to the studio, and we'll let him continue with his account of his journey. I'll catch everyone at the end of the episode. The road to Port Prospect was indeed a long one. The inhabitants of Alexandria were quick to warn us of this fact, but I had been so eager to leave that backwater that the words went in one ear and out the other. The first leg of our journey took us past the looming Tower of Alexandra once again, its presence bringing up memories of monster fights, fireballs, and creepy wall faces. I was sure that never in the history of the land had such a talented sculptor left behind a literal monument to wasting resources. Had the people of Alexandria been a braver and wiser bunch, they could have relocated their settlement to within the walls of the tower, clearing out the monster menace once and for all, and giving the tower a reason to exist." I had previously thought the lack of stone in the town was due to it running out after the Elbert family mansion was constructed. Turns out I had the right family, but the wrong over-the-top building. Seven stories of solid stone that served no purpose whatsoever, except for a yearly pilgrimage undertaken by the residents of Alexandria. As we passed over the mountain range and out of view of the Tower of Wasted Stone, I breathed a sigh of relief. Relief first and foremost at crossing a mountain range, but also relief at leaving the Elbert family's sphere of influence far behind. Or so I thought. The route afforded us some of the most interesting and spectacular views that we had yet come across on our journey. Majestic mountains and incredible coastal views did not put a dent in the determination of our little party. Our minds were consumed with thoughts of what we might find when we finally reached Port Prospect. Would we be in time to finally stop Dual Magus from taking another person's life? Would we be able to finally confront him for his crimes and bring him to justice? Were Yengis and I really ready to confront such evil? And would King Trode actually do something to help us? As always, monster battles broke up the monotony of our trip. The earlier pattern I had noticed after crossing the southern checkpoint held up here, too. The monsters we were fighting on the other side of the mountains 
were indeed stronger. Despite time being of the utmost importance, we couldn't resist stopping every now and again to engage monsters in battle to gain critical experience, items, and gold. Now, it's long been known that monsters like humans have an affinity for collecting items and gold pieces. What is not known is why monsters like to carry gold pieces and items with them. One popular theory says that monsters simply steal items and gold pieces from humans that they encounter in the wild, perhaps when said humans are resting or not paying attention to their belongings. Another theory, which seems the most plausible to me, puts forward the idea that monsters, just like humans, take whatever items and gold pieces they can scavenge after defeating their opponents in battle. Another gray area of understanding a monster behavior involves where they stash said items. Some monsters have mastered the art of textiles, and it is highly likely the skippers, fencing foxes, and skeletons of the world simply utilized pockets to stash items. But the vast majority of the monsters one encounters in the wild, be they the simple slimes, lips, bunnicorns, or candy cats of the world, roam nature as nature intended, in the buff. It is most likely better left unexplored and unsaid as to their means of storing items and gold pieces. They have never been observed in the wild engaging in commerce or industry, so it is a mystery indeed as to why they go to the trouble of collecting these items if they are never able to use them. Regardless of the intricacies of unexplainable monster behavior, humans are well known to be the beneficiaries of these items and gold pieces, provided they are up to snuff with their combat skills. Thankfully for seasoned warriors such as Yengus and myself, the monsters that crossed our path on the way to Port Prospect provided little in the way of challenge and much in the way of gold, items, and experience in battle, which we would surely be needing if we were to stand a chance against any encounter with Dulmagus. Eventually, we reached the town of Port Prospect, its name being quite fitting, as it was a small port town overrun with sailors and evidence of a healthy, trade-based economy. Before I could get a good look around the town, I was accosted by a red-robed, spectacled, powdered wig-wearing individual. After our less-than-warm welcome in Alexandria, coupled with the mob mentality of the citizens of Fairbury, I had learned to be on guard every time we entered a new settlement for the first time. Thankfully, it turns out he was just the town's resident photographer, and not some well-dressed elderly version of the town guard looking to pick a fight with strangers. Cameron Obscura, as he preferred to be called, was simply another quest-giver, although his quest was altogether very strange indeed. He tasked us with the monumental challenge of taking photos across the entire world, quests that would have us searching out unusual monsters and unique locales. Unlike other quests we had undertaken on our journey thus far, thinking of you, Valentina, and Bangers and Mash, we would actually be rewarded for our efforts. We accepted, of course, eager to participate in a quest 
that offered us substantial rewards. After speaking with Cameron, I was able to get a good look around Port Prospect. In the center of the small town, there is an absolutely majestic fountain. In the town's well, I encountered a metal heel slime instead of treasure, whose story would prove to be prescient. He told me he was scared out of the sea by the boss in the ocean, and was taking refuge in the town's well. His crime? Salivating just a little bit over the boss's food. Little did I know then that I would meet his boss very soon indeed. The inn in Port Prospect is an absolute must-stay in my book. It was very bright and cheery, I loved the wall designs, the flooring was amazing, and there were plenty of different textures throughout. Of course, looking back on it, I could have just been really excited to be staying somewhere that took pride in its appearance after being used to the drab interiors of the inn in Alexandria. A visit to the local church provided the only oddity I could find in this port town. There were no seats at all in this house of worship, and not a priest to be found here either. A passenger on the ferry informed me that he saw a man walking across the water, and a huge monster appeared and blocked the ship's path. Armed with this promising lead on the whereabouts of Dulmagus, we made our way to the town's magnificent lighthouse. My excitement and enthusiasm for Port Prospect evaporated after speaking with a grizzled sailor and learning that this port town was also built by the Elbert family and that all of the town's residents work for Miss Jessica's family, just as her family casts its domineering shadow over the town of Alexandria. So too, it seems, did her family's reach and influence extend to Port Prospect as well. There really were no limits to her family's greed and influence. And sure enough, upon entering the Grand Lighthouse, there she was in all her glory, Miss Jessica, angry and upset as ever. Because creating conflict seemed to be her passion, she was in the midst of loudly berating a poor sailor, demanding that the ferry sail her to the southern continent. The poor sailor was clearly stuck between a rock and a hard place, given the dangerous state of the seas at the moment, and the very logical argument that he was unwilling to put her in danger due to her being a member of the Elbert family and all. Jessica clearly not used to being told no by people who were not her family members, spotted us out of the corner of her eye. I remember wishing I was anywhere else but there, since I had long ago made up my mind about getting involved with members of the Elbert family. While I was legitimately sad at her brother's untimely demise at the hands of Dulmagus, the surviving members of the Elbert family did not inspire confidence in their leadership or people skills. Do you know, after all this time, I can distinctly remember her greeting to us back in Port Prospect. She had the nerve to chastise us for not waiting for her in Alexandria so she could properly apologize to us. Clearly, had we taken that approach we would still be there today waiting for our official Elbert family apology. 
I get she left her mother of the year in quite the huff, but one would think she could have turned her blinders off for just a second and saw us standing there in the manse. I knew what it was Jessica would propose before the words left her lips. We're both after Dulmagus, right? We both need to cross the sea to the southern continent. Therefore, since our goals align and my Elbert family privilege prevents me from lifting a finger to help those in need, you and Yangus can fight the sea monster for me. Sure enough, I was correct. That was indeed her plan of action. Better to let the common riffraff risk their lives instead of someone born from noble blood. Now as much as I did not want to be stuck on a ship listening to her rant and rave about all of the perceived injustices she faced, I knew there wasn't a better way to move forward. It wouldn't be the first time on my journey that I had to learn to put aside my own feelings and focus instead on the party's mission. We needed to stop Dulmagus and bring him to justice once and for all so that his indiscriminate killing spree would finally end and the princess and King Trode could be transformed back into their old selves. If that meant agreeing with Jessica's plan in order to move forward, then so be it. If there was one good thing about traveling with someone with privilege— it was that others readily listened and obeyed her without question. She gave the command to set sail, and we immediately set sail. If I'm being totally honest, I was a tad bit jealous at this, seeing as how a guard is trained to obey orders without question, and not to give orders and have them be obeyed. Before we had made it very far, our progress to the southern continent was impeded by the very same sea monster, which we had heard a great deal about back in Port Prospect. Except no one we had spoken with had mentioned the sea monster's gift, ventriloquizing. Before his inevitable attack, he performed a little show for us. His two performing tentacles were named Tickles and Tenta, and their performance involved berating humans for sailing their ships over the heads of sea creatures, blaming humans for not having any manners, which was why Calamari, the name of this particular sea creature, decided he was going to attack us and stand up for all other sea creatures. To be honest, I had never really considered this perspective before. Monsters on land were much more visible, and with few exceptions, fights with them could mostly be avoided by both parties. However, the creatures of the sea did not have the same luxury. The boats used by humans to sail the seas and rivers had no mechanism with which to avoid hitting or running into the monsters that inhabited the depths. So while Calamari brought up a good point during his performance, there really was no time to attempt to apologize for our perceived infractions, because before we knew it, he straight up attacked us. I wasn't surprised that Miss Jessica did not lift a finger to help Yengis and I at all during the battle. It was a grueling battle, sans Jessica's help, to say the least, as in true sea monster fashion, 
Two of his tentacles were free to smack us every which way when he wasn't breathing fire in our direction. Thankfully, it wasn't too long before Yengis and I claimed victory over the angry cephalopod. He admitted in his defeat that a jester walked across the water toward him, and after speaking with him, his magic caused him to start attacking ships. Clearly, this must have been the work of none other than Dual Magus, so we were clearly on the right track. And as a peace offering, we were given a gold bracer by Calamari for our troubles. In much the same way that Geyser, back in Waterfall Cave, had finally handed over the crystal ball we had been seeking. I then came to realize that monsters, while inclined to attack and usually difficult to reason with, had so far given us much more to help us on our journey than the human quest givers had. After all, there was Valentina, whose only gift to us had been her thanks, and there was the infamous duo of Bangers and Mash, who had simply apologized long after the fact for attacking us and blaming the death of Alistair and Jessica's escape from the Elbert family mansion on us. The rest of our voyage to the southern continent wasn't as eventful as being attacked by a giant cephalopod. The first thing of consequence was Jessica finally taking time out of her busy schedule to officially introduce herself to us. I'll never forget the way she said it. I'm Jessica. Jessica Elbert. Spoken in the manner of someone who has truly gotten by on name recognition. And I do suppose growing up as she did in Alexandria, where everything revolved around her family, in the shadow of the stone tower built by her ancestor, and now riding on a ship whose crew members served her family and hailed from a port town built by her family, I suppose I couldn't blame her for growing up the way she did. Her name really did mean something to people, at least in that part of the world. She also took the time to formally apologize to us for calling us thieves back at the Tower of Alexandria, which I must admit I had completely forgotten about, what with having to dodge her poorly aimed fireballs and all. She also offered to join our party officially, since we were both after Dual Magus. Before I could think better of it, I nodded in agreement. After all, with Trode and Princess Medea in no condition to fight, and the monsters inexplicably getting stronger as our journey continued, Yengis and I could definitely use the help in combat. There was little doubt we would have to work hard to train her to get better with her magic, if her lack of aiming was any indication of her overall skill with the magic arts. The second thing of consequence was King Trode actually lifted a finger to do something to help on our quest. If you recall, much earlier on my journey, I had wondered why my employer wouldn't let either Yengis or myself ride inside of the wagon. Turns out he had been working on a top-secret project, building a legendary alchemy pot. While I do not doubt that it will come in handy on our journey, I was left speechless at the time for several reasons. First, how did King Trode, in his present state, 
managed to carry it out of Castle Trodane. No, really. The thing is almost as big as he is. And it is very heavy to boot. Secondly, how did I not notice him doing this? Was I really failing at my guard duties of always being attentive? Thirdly, where did King Trode learn how to fix a legendary alchemy pot? I would have no idea how to do so, or even where to start. To say that I was proud of my employer was an understatement. I even felt a little guilty for griping about his lack of effort. Though, to be fair, Yangus and I were doing the vast majority of the work on this quest so far. When we finally reached the southern continent, I was greeted with my first view of Peregrine Key. This port town was really nothing more than a few docks, an open-air marketplace, and an elaborately constructed tower that combined the services of an inn with the charm of a small tavern. The tower did have an enormous staircase that led to the very top, which offered sweeping views of the ocean to the north and the wooded hills and mountains of the southern continent off to the south. After being cooped up on a ship for such a long time, it felt great to walk around Peregrine Key, even if most of my enjoyment stemmed from smashing all the pots and barrels in the marketplace, even daring to do so right in front of the shopkeepers. To their credit, and to my puzzlement, the shopkeepers didn't utter a single word or throw a curse in my direction at my smashing spree. After a much-deserved rest in Peregrine Key, we set out early the next morning. I couldn't help but notice that the landscape in this part of the world wasn't really all that different from the northern continent we had left behind. The road we traveled took us through forested copses, grasslands, and hilly terrain. In a way, the familiarity of the landscape was a small comfort, being so far away from Castle Trodane and the world I had known for such a long time. Tucked into some of the wooded areas far removed from the road, I glimpsed the ruins of buildings long since abandoned and collapsed. It made me wonder about the history of the region we were trekking through. Were these the ruins of long-forgotten towns, or homesteads in the hinterland that had to be abandoned at some point? When I wasn't enjoying taking in the landscape, we were fighting against some of the most fearsome creatures we had yet encountered on our journey. As expected, the strength of the monsters in this part of the world continued to increase. Barely a day had elapsed since we agreed to allow Jessica to join our ragtag party, and I was sure glad we did. The monsters included bullfinches, winkies, she-slimes, and chainines. As we progressed onward, we came across unusual monsters, such as dingalings, Gigantic golden bells with disturbing humanoid faces that had taken on a mysterious life of their own. But taking the cake had to be the enormous Jargon, a lizard who walked upright and carried a large pot strapped to his shoulder. When he wasn't hitting us with the sheer force of his belly, he would take a sip out of his pot 
and then breathed fire upon us. I sincerely hoped Jessica was taking notes, since his fire-breathing attack never missed us. Eventually, we came across evidence of human settlement and civilization. As we approached the river, the road took us past farmland and stables. On two separate islands in the river, there stood immaculately crafted buildings. They were a sight for sore eyes. Not since Fairbury and Castle Trodane had my eyes come across buildings of such craftsmanship, beauty, and magnificence. I could not wait to explore this new town. I only hoped that we weren't too late to stop Dual Magus from taking another life. And that's all for today's episode. I want to thank our special guest, The Hero, for stopping by again and recounting the third big adventure on his quest to defeat Dual Magus. I hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode. If so, I do hope that you will consider taking the time to leave a review and help to spread the word about this podcast. Next time on the Games That Made Me podcast. The hero returns to tell us about the time he was the smartest person in an entire town, explored the haunted depths of a long-deserted abbey, ended up imprisoned for a crime he did not commit, and met a skilled swordsman who didn't believe in playing by the rules. In the meantime, please feel free to visit my website at www.thegamesthatmademe.com. You can also start up a conversation with me by sending me a message at thegamesthatmademe at gmail.com. I would love to hear your thoughts and opinions on all things Dragon Quest. Until next time, I hope you lose yourself in an amazing video game or two. Take care. Bye-bye.